A link between Shakespeare and Ukraine? Yes, there is one. And it's one that resonates on many levels. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger Director. In 1996, the Folgers sponsored an event along with Penn State University and the Russian Embassy in Washington. Its title was Shakespeare and the Worlds of Communism, and it looked at Shakespeare's role in the formation of culture within the bloc of countries that had been allied with the newly collapsed Soviet Union. One particularly important presentation given over those three days was by Irina Makarik, a professor of English at the University of Ottawa. It was titled, What's Past is Prologue, Shakespeare and Canon Formation in Early Soviet Ukraine. While the paper didn't seem as important in the moment, it was one of more than a dozen delivered, it has become important with time. In fact, today, there are parts of it that even seem prescient. Irina's paper looked at how Ukrainians, in particular the acclaimed Ukrainian theater director Alexander Les Kurbas, used Shakespeare's plays to elevate the idea of Ukrainian culture. And she examined how the Russians, first the Tsars and then the Soviets, repressed that Shakespeare in order to keep Ukrainian culture under their thumb. As Vladimir Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine continues, we invited Irina to recap the high points of her research. We call this podcast, I Do But Dream on Sovereignty. Dr. Irina Makarik is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I know your family is from Ukraine, and I just can't imagine what it must be like to watch this brutal war from so far away. Are you in touch with uh, people or family or friends or colleagues near the fighting? All of the above. I have lots of cousins, and they're spending their nights in bomb shelters, uh, but they don't want to leave. I have colleagues, Shakespeare colleagues, who have given up uh, teaching Shakespeare and are helping with the war effort. And it's it's been very hard to look at the destruction that has occurred and the way that civilians are being targeted. That's the most uh, difficult. Oh, wow. That, that I, I really feel for you. It's, I didn't want to start the conversation without talking about what this means to you, because we're going to go way back and give uh, Mm -hmm. context to a conversation about Shakespeare in Ukraine and Shakespeare uh, in the Russian Empire. So let's get into Shakespeare now. Um, And and as I said, I do want to go way back to the beginning of this story, uh, to how Shakespeare first came to the Russian Empire before the Bolshevik Revolution. And we should remind everyone, of course, that Ukraine was part of Russia at the time. So Shakespeare came to the Russian Empire in the 18th century. And essentially, he came mediated either through French or German and with a tradition of melodrama and idealized Shakespeare. Uh, And what do you mean by idealized? Idealized? Oh, anything that uh, was uh, double entendre, any uh, low characters were removed. It was made into a, a very elegant tragedy uh, or tragic comedy. Um, uh, in the middle of the century, Alexander Sumarokov, who was considered the father of Russian drama, translated Hamlet from the French and he made Hamlet into a, uh, well, what we call a comedy with a happy ending and a moralistic message. So that was the very first uh, translation. And the subsequent uh, tradition of mediation just continued. 
One of the most remarkable and amusing, I think, from my perspective, is the title of Alexander Rochenko's translation of Macbeth, 1830, which he called Macbeth, a tragedy of Shakespeare from the works of Schiller. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. you, have to, you have to think about that for a little bit. Uh-huh. That's not how I remember the authorship <laughs> issue. <laughs> so that, that sense of mediation is there. So that's this is all in text. This is, Shakespeare wasn't being performed? No, he was not being performed. And, and we do have other adaptations. Catherine the Great also adapted uh, Mary Wives of Windsor. And she called it something like, this is what it means to have a basket and linen. She turns Falstaff into a fop, Polkadoff. Francis Ford becomes Fordoff. And Mistress quickly becomes a French shopkeeper. So huge translations. We have to remember that there's very little uh, literacy in the Russian Empire at this time. So it's a tiny, tiny group of people who know about Shakespeare. So Shakespeare didn't have then a very high profile uh, culturally. No. But, but what was he thought to represent, at least in the eyes of the monarchy? Was he seen as pro-monarchy or the opposite? In the 18th century, he was seen as an emblem of the English national character, the English being bloody-minded, loving murder, and horror. <laughs> Ors? Orish? You mean? <laughs> so so not, not a very high reputation at all. Uh, the turning point came with Alexander Pushkin, who admired Shakespeare's history plays in particular. And he referred to Shakespeare as Father Shakespeare. Uh, and so we see a lot of allusions to Shakespeare plays in his poetry, but also in his dramas as well. But then on the other hand, there was Tolstoy who famously hated Shakespeare. Yeah, that's a little further along, so late in the 19th century, but uh, Tolstoy figures part of that long tradition of uh, a sense of literature always having to have a purpose. And Tolstoy thinking about Shakespeare as being a poor writer uh, who has pompous language, whose vision of the world is immoral. So he comes from a tradition, I think, of dislike of Shakespeare's complexity, I would say. Okay, well, this gives us a good fix on how some Russians at least thought about uh, Shakespeare before the revolution. But what about Ukraine? Because a major point that you make is that Russian culture is not a monolith. And you write that one of the things the czars did was rupture the natural development of Ukrainian culture in the 19th century. So huge question, how did they do that? And what part did Shakespeare play in it? So Shakespeare, as you suggest, uh, was a very important figure for Ukrainians. Uh, I can take us back again to the 19th century and the Ukrainian bard, Taras Shuchenko, who had been exiled by the Tsar into Kazakhstan and could only be allowed two books to read, the Bible and one other, and he chose Shakespeare. So Shakespeare was a source of solace uh, for, for many readers and something they desired. The, the 19th century Tsars, but particularly Alexander II, destroyed essentially, or tried to destroy Ukrainian culture through decrees and prohibitions, the two most famous being one of 1863, the one of 1876. The 1863 circular stated that there is no separate Ukrainian language. It never existed, it does not exist, 
and it never could exist. In uh, 1876, all theater performances in Ukrainian were banned. All books, Ukrainian books, print books were prohibited. All the books, Ukrainian books, in libraries were taken off the shelves. All translations, including Shakespeare and the Bible, were prohibited. Folk songs, when publicly performed, had to be sung in Russian or in French, but not in Ukrainian. Wow. By the late 19th century, there is some relaxation, and uh, we have some theater, but no stationary theater, uh, performing, um, touring theater is, is actually what happened. Uh, and it sounds and, really wild how this crackdown on Ukrainian culture affected the theater. Uh, and did I get this right, that if you're staging a play, any characters that were peasants or children were allowed to speak Ukrainian, but middle and upper class characters were required by law to speak Russian? That's right. I was just about to, to make that point you've got there before me. Absolutely. It's not that the actors were allowed to speak Ukrainian. They had to speak Ukrainian if they were peasants and children. So that meant that you were establishing national stereotypes mm -hmm. of an inferior group of people and that the Ukrainian language was not capable of uh, satire or history or plays of urban life. It was really just domestic and folkloric. And then this other stipulation, which I'm still trying to wrap my head around as a theater goer, uh, Ukrainian plays were permitted only if a Russian play was staged first on the same night and was of the same number of acts. Correct. Was, yes. <laughs> that's so, a long so night were, at the theater. Was this exactly. really enforced? It was. It was. Mm. So in 1905, some of these restrictions started to come off. You're right. Yes. How, how did the Ukrainians react? So this was a watershed moment. Uh, the, the decrees and prohibitions weren't entirely rescinded, but there was a relaxation, what we would call a thaw, and there was an opening up of possibilities. So there was a huge excitement about what could happen. It looked as if liberalism and creativity and moder modernity and modernism were all coming together and things could be possible. So we have a lot of avant-garde works. We have, for example, The Link, 1908 in Kiev, the very first uh, visual art uh, avant-garde exhibition in the whole Russian Empire that takes place in Kiev. We have Isadora Duncan, coming to Kiev, choosing Kiev for one of her very first venues of dance for a tour of 1907-1908. We have all kinds of artists in, in Ukraine that also traveled to Paris, to Munich, to Vienna, to Petersburg, Moscow, people like Malevich, uh, Tatlin, Burluk, uh, these people, Eisenstein, Kozintsev, we think of Kozintsev as a, as a Russian filmmaker, but he was born in Kiev. So all of these people coming together, creating uh, a ferment in art, uh, what I've called jubilant experimentation elsewhere. And we have a very important political moment Ukrainian as a language was finally declared an independent Slavic language by the, the recently created Russian Duma. Mm. Now that happens as a brief moment of, of glory, so to speak. Great. So it, it sounds like the, the kind of cultural Ukrainian spring happening, um, which is interesting because the, uh, the, this avant-garde was pretty well underway 
1917, although there's an idea that it was the revolution that led to an initial cultural flourishing in the USSR. And and again, one of your theses is just how off the mark that is, that the revolution actually interrupted what you're describing, this, this flowering process that was going on already. Absolutely. But I think we also have to realize that there are two different kinds of revolution. What was happening in Russia where, you know, Shakespeare was not of great interest in 1917 or 1922, even the founding of the Soviet Union, because they had a tradition of uh, of Russian Shakespeare and Russian art. But for the Ukrainians, having that moment in 1905 of an opening up of possibilities, including, very importantly, the creation of a stationary theatre, and then in 1917, a state theater. And in fact, there was a state theater that was Ukrainian. There was one that was Russian and one that was Jewish. And so all of these groups were also seeing each other's works. There was a great symbiosis here. So at this point in the story, we should talk about Alexander Les Kerbas. And he he just sounds like quite the visionary artist. You you should you should first just describe him for us. Sure, he was a charismatic figure. He was born in Western Ukraine. He was educated in Vienna. He studied uh, philology, Sanskrit philosophy. Uh, he was multilingual. He spearheaded this movement, a theatrical movement, away from Russia, and created a young company, a young theater company. He wanted to turn directly to Europe without any authoritative models or intermediaries. He didn't want to copy what Europe was doing, but rather to have a kind of dialogue with the classics, but with also all other works that were being creative, both in Western Europe, but also elsewhere. He was interested in Japanese theater. Yeah, and he also had some really interesting training techniques. Maybe you could tell us about his his training programs for his actors at his drama school. It, It sounds like it took months of training before actors were even allowed to speak. Yeah. (laughs) So in 1922, he created a theater company called the Berezil, which is the archaic word for March, uh, which signified spring, a new awakening and so on. And he created this company, which was, as he put it, not like a university because you finish university and you go on to something else. This would be a lifelong dedication to theater. And what was the idea that you actors shouldn't speak until they've done what? The, the idea was he didn't want actors just to emote or recite. The idea was to create an intelligent actor, a really cultured actor who knew all these things and could, with a simple gesture, embody a whole concept. And so he had his actors go to museums, to art books, and study individual artworks, you know, Cezanne's paintings, for example, and try to recreate the dynamic, the the rhythm of that artwork, or music, Beethoven, Scriabin, um, a, a whole range of sources. And they had to prove that they could repeat that same gesture again perfectly. So modern. Um, what interested him about staging Shakespeare? Because it, it sounds like he had an a, a unusual approach to that as well. Yeah, so uh, he, he staged the first Shakespeare in Ukraine. And for him, the first Shakespeare, which was Macbeth, was a revolutionary act. It was an assertion of the existence of Ukraine, of the Ukrainian language, of Ukrainian culture, 
that was certainly up to uh, embodying, representing, staging Shakespeare. This was 1919, and and you write that this, just to imagine a serious discussion and staging of Shakespeare during 1919, 1920, is mind-boggling. Describe Mm -hmm. what was going on then, what it was like to do theater then. So this is in the middle of total destruction, regions cut off from each other, no food distribution, no materials to work with, uh, where we have anarchist peasants roaming, where we have nine to 11 changes of government. The historian Edward Acton suggested that this was close to, in terms of the economic collapse, close to what it would have been after the Black Death in Europe in the Middle Ages. And yet in the middle of all of this, there was still this excitement about possibilities that art could be a way of moving things forward. And so Quidbus was creating uh, a production of Macbeth and said to his actors, you know, if you don't eat, that's okay. You should think about this and what we're doing for Ukrainian culture. This is our great moment. And he apparently had a series of hand gestures that he would gesture to people from backstage when uh, that they should stop because they're about to be shot at. That's right. That's right. Yeah, he had worked this out with one of the commanders of uh, the Bolshevik forces. And he knew when he had to either quickly end the play or immediately end the play because they they were going to be shot at. And there was great famine. I mean, his lady Macbeth was fainting in the wings. That's right. Yeah, she was fainting and they called a doctor who said there's nothing wrong with her that a good beefsteak wouldn't fix. And she's she's starving. Wow. So it's during this time that there are all these incursions on art and theater from the party. So what did artists have to do to keep up with all of these changes in the law? So uh, the the Soviet Union is uh, founded in 1922, and it takes a while before all of their censorship comes into Ukraine. And in fact, between 1922 and 1926, because of Lenin and because he understood that nationalism is an important way of... Um, encouraging people to agree to the the Bolshevik agenda. There's a period of Ukrainianization. So lots of translations, lots of theatrical experimental productions. But by 1926, the doors are closing. And what happens then is the first sort of volley is something called the the theatrical theses. And they essentially said that uh, directors had to be responsible to the state not to the audience. They started to create review committees, and these were uh, these consisted of people who knew little or no, had no knowledge of the theater. They were often representatives of trade unions, semi-literate or totally illiterate people, like representatives of the plumbers union, and they were now responsible for agreeing on what the repertoire would be, uh, what the number of plays that, that would take place. They pushed class issues. And so low characters began to appear as spokesmen for the proletariat. And masses had to be introduced everywhere in productions. So even including in the crypt scene of Romeo and Juliet at the very end, there's a whole bunch of people there, which is, of course, not in Shakespeare's play. Caden Petruchio's relationship becomes a struggle 
with the vestiges of the feudal past uh, and their attempt to create a new and a better socialist life. Uh, the official censor is created at times under the Soviet Union, employing as many as 80,000 people. So ensuring that the message on stage and page was doctrinally sound, unambiguous, uh, stylistically conformable to the, the style which came to be socialist realism. So this is a, a gradual process, starts in 26, it escalates in 28, 29, by 1934, there's no more experimentation. Okay, so uh, Lenin dies in 1924, and then the rise of Stalin. And, of course, Stalin takes aim at, at people like... Kerbis, they don't just, uh, Stalin and the uh, Soviet government don't just discourage Kerbis and these other radical theater types, right? They try to wipe them out, it sounds like. Absolutely. So the, the worst year is the year of 1937, the Great Purges, when according to historian Alan Bullock, there were 30,000 executions, when the whole Ukrainian government was wiped out when all of the cultural workers, uh, the whole intelligentsia was essentially executed or shipped to the far north to and also to Siberia. And among those victims was Les Kurbas, who was executed on the specific orders of Stalin himself and in celebration of the 20th anniversary of uh, the, the Soviet Union. So this was... Uh, a way of getting the teachers, the professors, the scientists, the theater directors, the actors, and to destroy them. It's such a tragic and familiar story. How, I mean, it is. How many tens, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of artists died in the gulag. And, and this is the period in which Stalin decrees that social realist art is the only true art? Correct. Yeah. So that comes a little bit earlier. It's 1934 when we have the meeting of Soviet writers and uh, they discuss what the right path forward would be artistically. And uh, we have Zhdanov giving a keynote address saying that art has to be socialist realist. But what he means by that is that it has to reflect the minutiae of everyday life, yet the heroes have to be idealistic because they are looking forward to this great future with the Communist Party. And so uh, anything that is too complex uh, has to be considered decadent uh, or even dangerous to those who want to perform it. And that There's means Shakespeare? I mean, does that mean that the idea of a true tragedy or a death at the end of the play, they're not, uh, they can't go with that? Yeah, the tragedy becomes very difficult because what is created then is uh, a new genre, something called optimistic tragedy. If a hero dies at the end of the play, it, it has to be shown that he has died for the cause of the greater good, for the creation of this wonderful idea of the utopia that's about to be created. And so certain plays become particularly problematic, Hamlet being one of them. How about the comedies? Uh, the comedies, there are some comedies that are performed, and in fact, in that 
terrible year of 1937. There are a bunch of comedies that are being performed, and Stalin declares that the the world is getting better, happier, more joyous. And is this all in keeping or in keeping with an interpretation of Marx's directive to Shakespeareize drama? He said that, right? He did. Uh, so Marx and Engels, I think, should be credited as having saved Shakespeare in the Soviet Union. There was not a great interest in Russia in Shakespeare in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, he was a bourgeois writer. He was pre-revolutionary. But once uh, we have Marx and Engels being reprinted, and especially Marx, who has tons of references to Shakespeare, He used to quote Shakespeare at his breakfast table to his daughter, and he used Timon of Athens as a critique of capitalism. Marx becomes a way of saving Shakespeare, if you like. And if you read the theater criticism or the literary criticism of the time, you've got to start your opening paragraph by citing Marx on Shakespeare and saying how uh, Shakespeare is great because he presents this wide social spectrum, and uh, he is a humanist. And so these are terms that are repeated like a kind of mantra. And then Stalin comes along and Stalinizes uh, Shakespeare, I guess you could say. And then later on, you have the Soviet Union deciding to translate all of Shakespeare's plays into the 28-odd languages of the Soviet republics in an effort to battle Ukrainian nationalism. So I'm moving the timeline for forward pretty fast here, but maybe you could connect the dots for us there. Yeah, actually, we'd have to move the dots back a little bit. In 1934, at that Writers' Congress, when we have Maxim Gorky brought back from exile by Stalin, and Gorky was a big fan of Shakespeare's, and we have that idea of translating Shakespeare into all the different languages, and Shakespeare brought to the various republics in order to homogenize Soviet culture. So everybody knowing the same thing. And there was some pushback. So for example, the Uzbek theater said, we know nothing about Shakespeare. What is Shakespeare? What is drama? But the the Bolsheviks said, well, this is the highest level of art. It's important that you become progressive. It's important that this should be staged in Uzbekistan. Well, we got away from the subject of Les Kerbas uh, for a few moments, but I do want to get back to him. Was the purge of Kerbas all about attacking Ukrainian culture, or, or was it truly an argument about art? No, it, it was definitely about attacking Ukrainian culture and destroying the morale of people. If you have your whole level of educators and cultural workers and workers in the state and government destroyed, it, it's going to cow the population. So certainly it was partly to destroy any idea of nationalism. And Stalin's uh, henchman, Kaganovich, in fact, says that every time you you look at a Ukrainian, you're probably looking at a nationalist. So the idea was that this is, you know, a fearful um, nation, uh, the the Soviet nation, that is afraid that the Ukrainians are going to again declare independence as they tried in in 1917-18. They want to be autonomous. We have to keep them down. But um, the idea about uh, Kurbas and formalism and art is, I think, completely false. It was, um, Kurbas did many things, including set out surveys, detailed surveys that he gave to his audience. And in the audience, there were all kinds of people from, you know, 
peasants, villagers, people with little education, they loved his works and they found them completely comprehensible. Whereas uh, in the debates of the 19, uh, 1920s, 1929, uh, the argument was that uh, Kurbas is drawing theater away from its fraternal brother, Russia. It is, uh, he is creating a formalist theater that nobody understands. So the argument was supposedly about art, but it was really about destroying a culture. Hmm. And bringing this up to the present day, in recent years before this uh, conflict in, in Ukraine, has there been an inheritor to Corbus? Uh in the present time, we have Natalia Turkut, a professor uh, at Zaporizhia, where the nuclear reactor is, and she created a, a Shakespeare Center, and there are scholars there, there are students, they do theatricals, they have an annual competition. There have been tons of productions of Hamlet. There has been uh, a lot of translation. Uh, one of the best-known authors of the time, Yuri Andruhovich, has translated Hamlet, and his Hamlet uh, translations have been performed throughout Ukraine. And most recently, in a bomb shelter in Ivano-Frankivsk. Hmm. So, do you see parallels to today's situation in this story, of course, beyond Shakespeare, I'm talking politically or yeah, yeah. in the broadest sense. Uh, I see terrible, terrible parallels. In an editorial in one of the Kremlin media outlets, Novosti, RIA Novosti, uh, an author called Timofey Sergeyev wrote uh, a piece, What Russia Should Do With Ukraine. And he suggests a total erasure of Ukrainian identity, and even the word Ukraine cannot be allowed to exist. Now, this to me sounds like that decree I mentioned of 1863, where it is impossible to to come to sort of any terms with, with the Putin government. And so to have this production of Hamlet in a bomb shelter is an answer, which is to be as President Zelensky's response to the European Union was that this is a Shakespearean moment, it's an existential moment, and our answer, he says from his point of view, our answer as Ukrainians, is to be. Irena, I really want to thank you for talking with me today, and I wish safety to your family and your, your friends and your colleagues. Thank and I'm you hoping so much. for the best. And I am too. Uh, I think it will be horrible for a while, though. I just hope that in the end, uh, we will have Ukraine. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Dr. Irina Makarik is Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Ottawa. You can still read the paper she delivered on Shakespeare in Ukraine at the 1996 Folger Conference. The conference proceedings were published as a book titled Shakespeare in the Worlds of Communism and Socialism. The paperback edition was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2013. Her book about Les Kerbas was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2004. Its title is Shakespeare in the Undiscovered Born, Les Kerbas, Ukrainian Modernism and Early Soviet Cultural Politics. Dr. Makarik was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, I Do But Dream on Sovereignty, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. 
It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer, with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano, Lucas Kuzma, and Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.